Father, as we have sung today about your works in the course of redemptive history, we remember the chief among them, that Christ came and he suffered and died for us. And because the grave could not hold him, he signaled victorious triumph over the last enemy. And so in him, we have hope of future resurrection. In him, we have life eternal. In him, we have forgiveness of sins. In him, we have righteousness and peace with God the Father. Because and through the mighty work of salvation that Christ accomplished in His mighty work on Calvary, we thank You, Lord, for these truths that we celebrate, having the fullness of the canon now in our hands this day and in our hearts as Your Spirit opens its pages for our souls to comprehend. But we also thank You that long before You came in time, the prophets of old and even the Scriptures themselves testified to the coming Son of Man. And Lord, we see that thus, by these means, that you are sovereign over history and that there is nothing that escapes your attention and that every atom and every event in all of this universe serves to give you glory and is directed by your providential hand. Lord, as we look upon your scriptures this day, reaching back to the days of Noah, I pray that we would see the prophecies of Christ there. I pray that we would see the handiwork, the handwriting, the signature of our God on these events, and that as we do so, you would be glorified and your people would be equipped and encouraged. Strengthen our faith and strengthen our understanding of your holy word, that we might proclaim with power and walk in light of its truths, ever more obediently, giving glory to Christ our Lord. May you use the means of this service to sanctify your people this day and to draw the lost unto salvation if there are any within the hearing of this message who have not bowed the knee to their only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray, His name we celebrate this day. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we turn to God's Holy Scriptures in the book of Genesis, continuing our series, chronicling the events of the great flood of Noah. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis 7, 11 through 8, 5 will be our primary text today. There are 370 days upon, uh, in which Noah was aboard the ark. We have seen him enter the ark in Genesis chapter 7. We've seen a recapitulation four times in our text in recent messages of the instructions and initial events of the flood being reiterated, and we remarked that this is one way in Scripture, to emphasize something of importance. And so we sought to study that last time under the title Noah in Context. Uh, Today, we have another pattern in the Scriptures where we behold the works of our God under this title, Obedient Waters. The waters, which represent the forces of nature, are under the sovereign dictation of the Lord of the universe, their Creator, their Sustainer. The aim of this morning's message is to behold the voice of God in the forces of nature at His command. To behold the voice of God, or you could say behold the power of God in the forces of nature that stand ready at His command. Particularly today, we'll see that the waters, the floodwaters of this time, this era of Noah's Ark and the great deluge that would come upon the earth, we see them responding to the Lord's command and decree precisely according to His will and intent. And so to Genesis 7 we turn. Would you stand with me again out of reverence for God's holy word? And let us consider these scriptures this day. 
Listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing. Again, Genesis 7, 11 through 8, 5. Here we have the infallible word of our God. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of, heavens were, of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and his three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Verse 17, the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The water prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 21, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. And the rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We continue to note particular aspects of the flood account in Genesis 6 through 9, which emphasize its importance throughout all of Scripture. As in other event oracles, patterns of God's works are evident in this record. What is an event oracle? Just a reminder it's an event, it's a circumstance, it's something that God decreed in time and history, not only as a real thing that happened, but also to prophesy, to foretell, to instruct, to provide a pattern or an archetype, a symbol of something to come. It's both an event, recorded event in history, and also speaks prophetically of the future. Noah's Ark and the flood and so forth are one of these, an event oracle. The great flood of Noah's day served immediately to satisfy the purposes of God in the destruction of the unrepentant wicked. Why was the flood sent? First and foremost, immediately in context, it was God's instrument of death and destruction, judgment upon the wicked. 
Yet, it is continually referenced throughout Scripture as a signal of God's character and works for the ages. So the purpose of the flood is beyond just immediate, or what is immediately apparent in Scripture. It also serves as a signpost of God's nature, character, and works, and the things that He will accomplish yet in the future. Last time we noted, according to the greater testimony of God's Word, including references in Matthew 24, it's where Jesus prophesies destruction in Jerusalem and says it will be like in the days of Noah, and also 2 Peter 3, where Peter speaks of a judgment yet to come and says, and compares it to the days of Noah, we found in these references that the judgments of a sovereign God stand or fall with the flood. How important is the account of the flood? Well, according to Scripture, you know that God will certainly judge at the end of time and in history because He has judged the whole earth before in the days of Noah with the great flood. This is how important it is. The judgments of a sovereign God stand or fall with the flood. Consequently, it stands to reason, and this is from 2 Peter 3, if this is true, it stands to reason that unbelieving man seeks to dismiss the record of redemptive history evident in all the traces, all of the evidence of the flood that yet uh, can be found upon the earth. That is, the oceanic expanse, the fossil record, gigantic canyons, mountains rising, deep valleys, uh, rivers, and oceans that go on for miles and miles. Unfathomable ex expanse, two-thirds of this earth is covered by sheer water. Even natural history that we observe in science, all these things, if they serve to remind us by their prima facie, that is, face value, that God is a God who judges, it stands to reason that man in his wickedness would want to suppress this truth, suppress this evidence. And, he, and so he does, motivated by his unrepentant sin. This according to 2 Peter 3. Again, this is by way of review. Motivated by his unrepentant sin, he thus offers alternative explanations sinful man does, deliberately dismissing the historical significance of the great flood, both its historicity and the message that it preaches. By these means, men seek plausible grounds to deny the ultimate judgments of God. What is the chief end of wicked man? To reconstruct reality in his own image, to deny the ultimate reckoning that is to come, deny the ultimacy of God's judgments. What is the uh, chief end of man according to God? It is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever, the confession says. Polar opposites. A change of heart is necessary in order to see the world for what it is and to recognize the message that it preaches. And so with that change of heart and with the testimony of Scripture, we look upon the same evidence the eyes of the scientist looks upon and we are moved to awe and wonder and worship and a fearful service of the Lord, and a bowing before His authority and sovereignty, because we see that our God is sovereign in all these things. And so we must bow before Him. The Old Testament echoes these same themes. The Lord Himself appeals to forces and limitations of nature when He is interacting with Job. Again, by way of introduction, just turn to Job 38 quickly with me this morning. I want to give you more evidence of the testimony of nature with respect to the character of God. Here, we see the Lord giving perspective to Job, a man who was tempted to be self-centered and pitiful because he was under such duress, he was experiencing such hardship and trial and sickness and so forth. And so God brings his view, his perspective into focus by pointing to the power of nature and in so doing to his own power. Notice there's a few verses along this theme. Job 38, 8. Who shut in the sea with doors? When it burst out from the womb, 
When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, or caused the dawn to know its place? And it goes on and on. But notice those few verses there. Who shut in the sea with doors, or when it burst out from the womb? The fountains of the great deep burst forth. The sea, as it were, was birthed out of the womb explosively at the great flood in the time of Noah. But who would stop such a gale force? Geysers erupting from the subterranean oceans beneath the earth's surface, rushing into the atmosphere likely miles with water under pressure that you could not even imagine, washing away sediments layer after layer, shifting continents, raising mountains, digging gullies, gulches, canyons, and so forth, ex- uh, rendering, uh, exterminating uh, creatures, people, man, beast, swarming things, even the birds, everything with breath in its lungs destroyed in this cataclysmic event. Who will save us or the earth or these eight vulnerable, otherwise helpless individuals, and a few of each kind of the land animals in the midst of this gigantic cataclysm. Well, the Lord will. He is the one who tells the seas thus far and no further. He is the one that can birth the seas from the womb of the earth and replace them again. He is the one who can say to the proud waves, this far and no farther. He is the one who can set limits and bars and doors on the forces of nature. And so we see this in amazing, dramatic ways in Noah's flood. Perhaps never more in all of recorded history do we witness the power of God and the forces of nature to this nth degree. Hence, this surely is one of those events in the mind of God when He proclaimed to His servant Job, look at my power evidenced here. Look at my power evidenced there in the great flood of Noah's day and know that I am King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign creator, and sustainer. And if I make a covenant with you, I can stop the sea with the wall of my own hand to make it come to pass. Or I can birth an ocean from the womb of the earth if that's what is needed to accomplish my will. So equipped with this insight, we can chart the course of even the floodwaters in Genesis 7 and 8 and recognize the sovereign hand of Almighty God in history. Here's a heading, Glorious Acts of God Reflected in the Waters of the Flood. The title this morning again is Obedient Waters. And I wonder if you noticed when we were reading how the waters react to the Word of God. There are kind of three situations in view. The first, and this is just by way of overview of my message, the first is the waters increase. The second is the waters prevail. And the third is the waters subside. So you catch this kind of uh, graph, if you will, waters increasing, a line ascending. Waters prevail, we have the plateau, this high and no further, God says, for the judgment waters of the earth. Does anyone know how high the flood waters were above the highest mountain, young people? 50 cubits, close, close. How high was the flood waters above 100 cubits? 18 feet, getting closer. So 15 cubits. Close. So right here, from elbow to fingertip is about a cubit, so far as we know. And imagine 15 of these on top of the highest mountain. And that was the limit of the flood. And God said to the seas, that far, no further. We'll see that. So again, the shape of the waters, 
Following God's command, they're escalating, they're rising, they're rising. And then they prevail, they get to a certain height and then they stop. And then, sovereignly, by God's will, by His word, they begin to decrease, abate, subside. We see that language in our text today. Notice quickly verse 17. The waters continued 40 days, the waters increased, and they bore up the ark. 18. The waters prevailed and increased. And then we have this prevailing language, 19 and 20. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains. And then we see again, verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But then a shift. The Lord remembers Noah. And then verse 1, chapter 8, the waters begin to subside. And then we see how the heavens were restrained. The waters recede. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. These are the glorious acts of God, or what glorious acts of God are reflected in this movement of the waters on the globe? They could remind us of three things at least. First of all, escalating judgment. With the rising waters, so the judgments of God escalate. They increase. They come upon the wicked world that we see in context. Secondly, there's a precise duration. The works of God are finely tuned, exactly calibrated according to His timetable so that at exactly the second month and the 17th day and so on and so forth that we see in our text today, X will happen. So there is a precise duration for this flood. And thirdly, there is a merciful rebirth. Though the world does not deserve it, the wicked man does not deserve a second chance, let's say, the waters nevertheless subside, recede, abate, and from this sovereign act of God, a new world emerges, so to speak. So in tracking the course of the waters in the flood, we see God's judgments, we see His precise timing, and we see merciful rebirth. Let's explore this a little more, in a little more detailed way. Genesis 7, 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. I highlighted in my Bible 40 days. It's another term that's repeated in our context here. Notice in, the, in chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth. For how many days, kids? How many days, how many nights did the rain fall? That's correct. Forty days and forty nights the rain fell. Here we have a reference again in our text, verse 17. The flood continued for forty days upon the earth, the waters increasing. So by, this, by these markers in the flood account, we know that the sources of water, the spigot, was turned all the way on from the fountains of the great deep and from the windows of heaven for forty straight days. For 40 straight days, those water sources provided the quantity of water that was necessary to submerge the earth, even the highest mountain, by 15 cubits. Why 40 days? The term 40 days, this frame of time, is common throughout Scripture, and it is telling indeed. Just as the waters increased for 40 days, other things happened over the course of 40 days in Scripture. Deuteronomy 10, you can study these on your own time, 10 through 11, and that's paralleled with Exodus chapter 32, two uh, sets of 40 days are in view. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. And the first time, his first trip up of Mount Sinai, what did God give him? Anyone remember? Lots of trivia today. Moses' first trip up, up Mount... Very good, the Ten Commandments. 
Moses spent how many days upon the top of Mount Sinai? Yes, indeed, 40. In that, in that span of 40 days, the law of the Lord is delivered to Moses sovereignly. These are, this is a testimony of God's righteousness and the corresponding judgments that God gave through His law for disobeying His word. And also, the corresponding blessings, blessings that attend those who are faithful to that scripture. 40 days, a significant block of time. Moses goes down the mountain, 10 commandments in hand. What does he see? But he sees the very law that he just received in his arms broken before his very eyes. A golden calf is erected. The guy who is supposed to be a priest before the people leading them in the worship of the one true God has constructed these golden calves, namely Aaron, and the people are carousing and they're worshiping this golden idol and, and so forth. So what does Moses do? He smashes the Ten Commandments before them, and he is angry. He summons the Levites, gird up your sword. We have judgment to take care of here. Moses, with these other dudes in tow, and their swords sharpened for judgment, went forth and slew. They killed 3,000 guys. The Lord brought a plague as well. But the story didn't end there. Not everyone was killed. Moses went back up the mountain to plead, taking on a priestly role to intercede, to stand between the wicked people who deserve judgment and a holy God. And he prayed that on the ground of God's glory, he would spare his people. Guess how long he prayed for God's people? Yes, 40 days, 40 nights. He prayed, he interceded for God's people. There was a time in Israel's history, I think 1 Samuel 17, where a gigantic guy began to threaten the armies of Israel. What was his name? Nine and a half feet tall. Anyone know? Goliath. Goliath taunted the Israelites 40 days and 40 nights. Send out a man. I'll fight him. Whoever's the winner will be the victor in this conflict. The people of God were shaking in their boots. And yes, David, until... David, God's servant, the anointed king, was sent forth after 40 days to defeat the enemy. And so again, 40 days is in view. And of course, this reminds us of Matthew 4, which we'll touch upon in a moment. You can turn there with me if, if you want to. Jesus himself had his own 40-day period. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6 is another reference where the prophet was told to lay on each side. And on one side, at least, as I recall, he laid for 40 days, symbolizing judgment that was coming upon Judah. Lay on one side, symbolizing judgment that would come upon Israel, the other side upon Judah. Again, 40 days. So what does this all indicate? Well, the testimony of God's glorious acts reflected in the waters of the flood proclaimed this message, that the days of judgment are absolute, but they are numbered, and they are interrupted by God's grace when He provides a way of salvation. In all of these accounts of 40 days, there was judgment to reckon with, but there was also a number upon which that judgment would cease and God would provide salvation. After 40 days of taunting, Goliath is defeated. After 40 days of intercession, God spares his people. After 40 days of flooding, there, uh, the earth, or, or the, uh, earth uh, that was deluged by flood stops, and then after a while, the waters begin to survive. Uh, subside. And, the, and after 40 days of Jesus' own temptation, he defeats Satan. So the message for believers is, you may encounter a time or you may be born in a time where God's judgments are particularly focused upon a people 
or and so forth. You may live in an era or among a people or in a culture that is under some divine chastisement. But if you trust God's way of salvation, if you are in your covenant head, ultimately Christ, those days of judgment are numbered. Judgment for the believer is temporary. It's judgment that he experiences uh, tangentially or incidentally, but not ultimately. Judgment for the unbeliever is absolute and ultimate and forever. But salvation for the believer is eternal. Moses, or Noah, excuse me, and his family endured for 370 days on that ark, but they would eventually, after a year plus, step foot on a rebirthed earth, if you will, on in a new world. This is the message of the escalating judgments of God. This is the message of the increasing water, the floodwaters rising. Floodwaters came from two sources, as I've mentioned. In uh, chapter 7, verse 11, it says, The fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. Now, just to give you an idea of the catastrophic effects of this kind, these kinds of natural forces being unleashed in the world by God's sovereign hand, think of it this way. This is a flood theory that I, we're, it was interesting in morning prayer, uh, Danny mentioned a guy named Walter Brown. And I remember studying Walter Brown's flood theory back when I was in my early teens. And basically, he conceived of a, a situation as follows. Imagine the earth, and underneath the crust of the earth is a subterranean, that means underground body of water, like an ocean. And then imagine a second thing. The pressure on the earth's crust is increasing. What would you expect to find after a certain amount of time? Eventually, like the shell of an egg, there would be a crack. And now with the weight of that earth's crust pressing forth on that subterranean water, the waters, as it were, the fountains of the great deep in this hypothetical would rush forth from underneath the earth's surface. Incidentally, if you were to look at a globe that was an underwater map of all the oceans, you will see what looks like a crack going all the way around circumventing the globe. It coincides with the mountain range where the lower basalt layer of the earth is lifted up. And there's fissures in a series all the way around. Also, the major mountain ranges of the earth are parallel to this line. It's called the mid-oceanic ridge. While Brown postulates that this is likely the source of the fountains of the great deep. And as those fountains rush into the sky miles and miles, they wash with it sediments that then fall over the surface of the known world at that time. And these waters bubble over and they begin to fill up the earth as it was known at that time with more and more floodwaters. These chaotic seas could likely cause and that raising layer of their surface continental drift. And as those continents pick up speed and eventually encounter resistance, mountain ranges would begin to buckle up parallel to the mid-oceanic ridge, so on and so forth. Could you imagine the fossil beds that would be made by this cataclysmic events? Yes, you would expect to find fossils in Earth's deserts, on the top of Earth's mountains. You would find the fossil records strewn about the surface of the entire globe, and so, that it, and, and so it is today. That's what scientists actually find. But imagine a world, regardless of exactly how the circumstances worked out, I'm partial to that theory myself, but you can imagine just by the account in our text today how chaotic the seas would have been at that time, never more tumultuous. You could imagine the earthquakes and the shaking and the uh, absolute avalanche of devastating elements that would wash over the people. And the, this uh, devastation was so great, in fact, that it even killed all the birds. One of my kids asked this week, why do you suppose the birds died? 
Wouldn't there have been some floating debris in the water, say logs or matted vegetation, where a bird could likely survive for a year with some food and stuff that he could find? Well, I think this indicates to us how significant these events were. This tumultuous uh, event of the flood was so devastating, in fact, that not even the birds were able to, to survive the breadth and scope of this destruction. This is what we see with the windows of heaven dumping down from above and the fountains of the great deep bursting forth from underneath. Talk about escalating judgment. When the womb of the earth burst forth and the fountains uh, be, were shot into the sky, we see evidence of the seas, the waters of the earth, obeying the command of our God. And what do they teach us? What do they proclaim? So it is deserving, or this judgment is deserving of everyone who stands in rebellion of the maker, creator, sustainer of heaven and earth. This is the message. The catastrophic judgments, the devastating destruction that we witness in God's holy word speaks of a hell to come for those who do not repent and bow before the only one who could grant them in, their, in His mercy and His grace their way of salvation. And this is only through the one way, truth, and life, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And so the rising waters speak to escalating judgment. It says in Romans that the wrath, uh, that the unbelievers who presumptuously sin with a high hand and continue in their wickedness are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. It's a picture of escalating judgment, floodwaters rising, or in the picture I gave you earlier, imagine the pressure increasing on the earth. There will come a time, think of that analogy, when the pressure of the wickedness of this, of this world will finally reach a breaking point and there will come a once-for-all final judgment. And the door of opportunity for salvation, as it were, to the ark, this way of salvation that God has provided, will be closed. God will shut that door just as He did in the days of Noah. And at that time, you may scream and cry, but you will be drowned, as it were. You will be judged for your sin. You will be eternally punished in the condemnation that your rebellion against the true sovereign uh, deserves. And so this is the testimony of God's glorious acts reflected in the waters of the flood. There was a 40-day period, as I mentioned, that Christ Himself endured. And this comes to us in Matthew chapter 4. You'll remember this, I'm sure. Uh, after Jesus is baptized, promptly... The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. We pick up on this account in the gospel. Then Jesus, chapter 4, 1 of Matthew's gospel, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written. And you, re you remember the rest of the story. Here, in this 40-day trial period, the passion of Jesus begins, so to speak. That is, the sufferings that He will endure as necessary judgments in order to set His people free. Jesus must endure, as the second Adam, this testing period. He must endure under these temptations. More than this, He must endure the wrath of God that our sin, yours and mine, deserves upon Calvary. And so as He moves through His ministry, we see it is no accident that he himself suffered this temptation in the wilderness, this privation for 40 days and 40 nights. Why? 
because he was the Noah to come. And in him would be prepared an ark for salvation. And this message attends his testimony that the days of judgment for those in Christ are numbered. But in the end, grace will be victorious and will provide for us safekeeping through the waters of judgment. That is to say that in Christ, who was baptized in the grave, our sins were atoned for and punished. And as Christ was resurrected, so we pass through the waters of judgment and baptism, as it were, unto newness of life. And so we can survive the 40 days of judgment, if you will. We can survive in Christ and in Christ alone. The escalating judgments, the rising waters of God's future plans to show Himself powerful and holy and just and righteous, they will, we will pass through those unscathed because Christ Himself endured that 40 days for us. Second major point today, glorious acts of God reflected in the waters of the flood. Escalating judgment as the waters begin to rise, and then precise duration. Genesis 7.20, back to our primary text today. Notice how carefully laid out these references are. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. An exact depth is given for the height of the floodwaters. It goes on to say that all flesh died and so forth. Notice other precise measurements, though. These have to do with time. Verse 11, chapter 7, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the, of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep, verse 4, and the windows of heaven, of the heavens were open. Turn over chapter 8, verse 5, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. One of my study Bibles has a chart for all these events, and it is amazing the precision and the symmetry of the whole flood account. Here's just a few highlights. They're highly specific calendar. This is a highly specific calendar of God's acts of judgment in this event. While the surface of the earth would appear, as I mentioned before, to be in total chaos, nevertheless, these forces were following the Lord's command to a T. The flood commences after a, an exact seven-day, one-week grace period at the beginning. You recall in Genesis 7, Noah enters the ark seven days and then the waters pour forth. They pour forth from the skies, burst forth from the springs of the earth exactly 40 days, and then they have filled up to the exact level God's means of judgment, and then they prevail. They prevail at this height, so to speak, for exactly 150 days. And then, at God's the snap of His divine fingers, if you will, they begin to recede. The waters that have risen now begin to retreat. They will retreat to the exact sea level that God has ordained their limitation. Accordingly, as we see in the book, saw in the book of Job in the introduction of today's message. However, Noah, as soon as he sees the tops of the mountains in the distance in the ark, 40 days after this, he sends a raven out. It brings back some information, an information that the world is unsuitable as of yet. The waters are still receding. And Noah waits again. Finally, after 150 days, the waters have receded. There's an additional 70-day period while the waters dry out. And eventually, after 370 days exactly, and all this is documented in the text, right down, the, down to the day, the month, the year that Moses was born, over the 600 and 601st year and so forth, 370 days total, the 
uh, event of God's judgment in the great flood is complete. Why this precision? I believe it's because of this. If in the natural eye you were to look upon the evidence of such an event, you would see what would appear to be absolutely untamable, intractable, uncontrollable forces over the globe. I mentioned to you in the past that pagan man, ancients, they looked upon the sea and they thought in their mind, there is no king alive who can control those forces. If gale winds want to take out my crudely constructed house here, there's nothing I can do to stop it. No matter how big and how strong and how well uh, the ships that we put together, even to this day that we launch at sea, we might claim, oh, this Titanic will never sink, funk. You know, iceberg, can't see it, blurb, 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 down to the bottom of the water. This monument to the strength and ingenuity of man. You can now visit it, but you have to take a submarine about a mile or something like that beneath the surface of the ocean. What does this tell us? That the sea on its own appears to us to be an absolutely chaotic, uncontrollable uh, set of forces that whip storms and uh, hurricanes. And you think of volcanoes and other natural forces fall into this category as well. However, there is one who controls them all, who has appointed the direction of every single wave, who has told the sea this far and no further, who commands and volcanoes belch forth molten rock from beneath the earth's layer, who says to the fountains of the great deep, on the count of three bursts forth, and on three promptly they obey, who says to the waters of judgment, rise to exactly this height, 15 cubits above the highest mountain, no further, who waits 150 days and says, now return to sea level as I commanded. And so clockwork on the day, on the hour, on the second, on the moment, and to the precise quantity, right down to the gallon, to the drop, the waters and forces of nature obey their Lord and Creator. Do not be fooled. When you look upon the creation, you don't see evidence of natural forces that are untamable, that are absolutely outside, you know, product of time, chance, and matter acting over billions of years. No. When you look upon nature, you see evidence of a God who has precisely fine-tuned this universe. We were just talking again this morning in morning prayer, how people try to come up with equations to explain how the universe is held together. And they come up with, well, by the mass quotient of all the known bodies you know, celestial bodies in the Milky Way. It doesn't make sense that there's enough gravitational force to hold it together. So they come up with this equation, they solve for X, and they call it dark matter. What's dark matter? It's what we presume must exist. It's never been tested in a laboratory, can't be seen, it can't be measured, it can't be verified, but we don't know how else this universe is held together. We don't know how else our galaxy is held in Uh, this orderly way without spinning off a billion directions and so forth. Why is it held together? Our scriptures tell us. It's not dark matter. It's the Lord of matter. Whether or not God has created certain forces like dark matter uh, to do so, that too would be evidence of his keeping hand according to Colossians chapter 1 and the rest of scripture. In other words, when the glorious acts of God reflected in the waters of the flood speak in their precise duration and their exact quantities and their precise timing to a sovereign God who is Lord of heaven and earth, who is Lord over the forces of nature and uses them at His appointment, the fullness of His timing, at His will and choosing to accomplish His holy will. You even see in their text today in verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm in the earth and mankind. What we have here is a restatement in order of how creatures were created in Genesis 1, 22 through 26. 
And now in this decreation event, God is bringing judgment, and those same creatures are destroyed in the order that they were created. This was not chaos. This was God's precise appointment of judgment on the earth. Verse 22, everything on dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed on the earth exactly, I added exactly, 150 days. The precise duration illustrates to us the scale of this, of this devastation and it speaks to us that this is an act by the sovereign creator who reserves a right to judge according to his precise time and by his perfect way when, uh, when he chooses to bring his righteousness to bear against a wicked people. Think of Jesus' death and burial. You don't need to turn there this morning, but mark it down in your notes, Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Jesus references a prior event, had to do with the sea and a fish. Who was rescued from the sea by a fish that God prepared? Does anyone know? Who was rescued from the sea by a giant fish? That's good. That's correct. Jonah. Why was Jonah in the belly of the whale three days and three nights? He listened to God. He prayed that God would save him. There's an additional reason as well, and it comes out in Matthew 12. Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, in the heart of the earth as it were, Three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, and then He will rise again. What is Jesus doing? He is prophesying, he is prophesying the means by which He will die, which He later says, you know, the cross and so forth, He will go to His death, uh, and the exact duration of the events. He is saying, do not be surprised. Do not let your faith be shaken. The things that will happen to the Son of Man in just a few days on the horizon here, they're happening according to God's precise calculations, exactly as I state them, so that when they happen, you can know, just like the great flood, that this is exactly according to God's plan. Jesus' death and burial, just as the duration and scope of the flood were a precise calculation to accomplish God's perfect will in time. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This prophetic truth and these precise calculations preach to us the glorious acts of God that are reflected in the waters of the flood. Just like the waters and the fish obeyed God's command, so Jesus Himself would follow God's decree, the will of the Father, and going to His own death. But that devastating act, that judgment that He took upon in our place for sin, there would, uh, would not keep Him in the grave forever. But in three short days, he would rise again. That brings us to our final point, merciful rebirth. Again, we are noticing how the glorious acts of God are reflected even in the waters of the flood. As they rise, we note the escalating judgments of our God. As they achieve their precise height and duration, we notice God's precise plan in history. And as they begin to recede, we recognize the merciful rebirth of our Lord. We recognize that in His grace, in His mercy, He calls life forth from the dead. We recognize that in His mercy, in His plan to glorify His people and to recreate earth, there will be one day a new heavens and new earth. We recognize in salvation with the receding waters uh, symbolizing as much that when you are born again, you are a new creature, creation, 
a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. And so it was in the days of Noah. The old was gone, absolutely devastated, but the new was about to burst forth. Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Uh, kids, you guys want to play the stop game? This is a little tougher one, a little tougher one, so listen closely. When you hear a word that talks about the waters going down, say stop, okay? So waters going down. You guys ready? Here we go. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. What was the word? Subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The ri- yeah, what was it? Closed. I'll take that one. And the rain uh, from the heavens was restrained. Oh, what did we have another one there? Restrained. And the waters receded from the earth. What was it? Receded continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Very good. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate. Oh, you guys are good. Abate until the tenth month and the uh, in the tenth month on the first day of the month the tops of the mountains were seen. Great job, you guys. So here are the words again in summary: subsided, restrained, closed, receded, and abated twice. And all this speaks to the waters uh, re- answering God's command upon the remembrance of His covenant with Noah to go down. That is, these forces of judgment are making their way for a merciful rebirth. They're clearing the way for God's future plans for His world. They're making way for His faithfulness to be fulfilled to His servant, Noah. Notice this phrase, 8.1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. A few cross-references just to note in passing. 9.15, the same language is used. God remembered His covenant. Well, I'll just turn there. God says, 9.15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Proof of this is when the rainbow happens after it rains. It reminds us that God will remember His promises. Genesis 19.29, God remembered Abraham and He answered His prayer to save his, son, his nephew Lot from the destruction, the whole-scale devastating destruction coming on the cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah. The same language is used. God remembered His promise to Abraham and spared His family. Exodus 2.24, the people of God are in slavery, 400 plus years. But God remembered His promise to Abraham and then the deliverance, the exodus, takes place. Luke 1.72, the prayer of Zechariah celebrates God remembering His covenant to His people, even the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who went before. And now, Christ being born... And his predecessor clearing the way, John the Baptist, are proof that God has remembered his covenant. This is what this language emphasizes and means in 8.1. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. What that means is God is going to fulfill with absolute certainty the promise, the covenant that he made with his servant. 6.18, he had said, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into your ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons, your wives with you. God's merciful rebirth, the key to that is covenant. Those with whom that God has established a relationship according to His terms 
will have the promise of miraculous rebirth, of merciful new life, of new creation, of regeneration, of new life, new heavens, and new earth eternally. And so this is the message of the receding waters in Noah's day. The glorious acts of God reflect are reflected in the waters of the flood. They are receding, they are dropping so that God's plan and purpose to repopulate the globe with a new Adam, as it were, Noah, with the seed of creation in tow in the ark would take, would take place and that people could once again fill the earth as He originally commanded. This happens by a sovereign act. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. You may be familiar with this Hebrew term, it's ruach. That word means spirit or wind. It's used interchangeably in Scripture, and the context lets you know the emphasis, but many times both are in view. And here is one of those beautiful poetic parallels. That is to say, just like in Genesis 1-2, the spirit, the ruach of God hovered over the face of the waters, calling out creation from the formless void. You remember, the lands were separated from the waters in original creation. So now a ruach, a wind, was blowing over the surface of the earth, causing the waters to subside, to recede, to abate, and separating the new land, the new earth, from the formless void, as it were. And so we have a second creation parallel here, a picture of a new creation. God remembered His covenant. He sent forth by the power of His Spirit the, the uh, forces to fulfill His word and His promise, and so He calls life from the formless void. Now, I've mentioned it before. It bears repeating. When you were born again, the same Spirit of God that called forth the land from the void in Genesis 1-2, the same Spirit of God that is pictured here in the wind that blowed across the expanse of the flood came upon you. There is no, it's no accident how the force of the Holy Spirit is pictured in the book of Acts as a rushing mighty wind. And evidence of His presence and power appears as tongues of fire uh, are apparent on the heads of the believers signaling an event in, his, in redemptive history that now the promise that Jesus, the, second, or the third person of the Trinity, that Jesus prophesied, the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit Himself, God remaining with us in the Spirit, would now be an ever-present reality in the life of all true believers. That is to say, the Spirit Himself blew, if you will, upon your life, calling out life from the formless void of sin. And so you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. It was pictured in the events of the flood, and it is fulfilled in the events of the book of Acts and the gospels and the uh, record of Scripture as we continue to see it unfold. Would you turn with me to one closing passage this morning? Speaking of merciful rebirth, we're reminded that Christ was in the heart of the earth, turn to, by the way, to Revelation 21, towards the end of your scriptures. We're reminded that Christ, though He was in the grave three days and three nights, the grave could not hold Him. And He would emerge. He would be reborn, as it were, from the grave. He would be resurrected. And His resurrected body was better than what He died with. It was, a different, it was in a different form, paving the way for a glorious resurrection for us. Because we are in Christ, His experience becomes our own, and we are assured of these circumstances in our future. Now, Revelation celebrates these kinds of things. And the picture of God's future plans for the world culminates in glorious prophecy in Revelation 21. You may recall verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the old world recedes, if you will, and a new world takes its place. A merciful rebirth in history is prophesied here. We see uh, a loud voice, we hear a loud voice in the scriptures declaring to us in verse 3. This comes from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And it goes on to say, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. The glorious acts of God reflected in the waters of the flood prophesied of a future where God would make all things new. Noah stepped out of the ark into a new world as it were. God had erased the wickedness. He had drowned the cultures that were steeped in their depravity. They were floating across the surface of the globe to become part of the fossil record, but there was a new world to be inhabited by God's covenanted, His faithful one, Noah. Noah had received the message of salvation. He had trusted in Christ. He had placed his faith and hope in God's word. Against all odds, he had built this ark. He had loaded it up according to God's purposes. Four times in this record it says he did all that God commanded him. And so, through this means of salvation that God supplied in his grace for his servant, there would come a day when Noah would welcome, would repopulate a new earth. This is our future as well, saints. The receding waters of Noah prophesy of the receding waters of God's judgment, His final judgment in the future. They will make way for a new heaven and new earth. They will make way for a glorious existence where the sin and the pain and all of the vestiges of the fall will be finally done away with. No more sorrow, no more weeping, no more sin. Praise His holy name. And you and I will be there in this new earth. In the Greek, is palingenesia, it's reborn earth, reconstructed environment and reality. You and I will be there if you trust in Christ today. This is a picture of the merciful rebirth of coming yet future resurrection and God's purposes to glorify Himself and to ransom a people along the way that we are partaking in even now as His plans march forward through history to the praise of His holy name. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of Scripture. We thank you for the message of the great flood of Noah. We thank you that all through the record that we have before us today is just unfathomable depths of your glory revealed to those who have eyes to see. I pray that as your word has been brought forth, if it has been brought forth in the Spirit, according to the Spirit, according to truth, that you would write it upon the tables of our hearts and encourage the saints in this place. I pray for those who yet remain lost within the hearing of this message that the truth of your judgments and the record of the same across this globe, even the expanse of the oceans and the rocky crags of mountain ranges, I pray that they would look upon these things and realize that there is coming a day of reckoning in the future and that they would turn in repentance and faith to Christ as their Savior and Lord. We thank you, Father, that your word is true. And while every scholar is proven foolish, 
according to His own wisdom and according to His own works, you remain. And in the end, Lord Jesus, there is great vindication for all the righteous. We look forward to that day where we will worship You, Lord, in this new world of Your design and creation. We thank You, Father, that You are our Sovereign and Lord, that You have made a way for us to be saved, and You have made a way, Lord Jesus, for this world to be reborn in the future to give praise and glory to Your name. Let us look forward to that day, praising You all the while and proclaiming these truths to a world who needs an ark, Jesus Christ, of salvation to be saved from the sin, to be saved from their sin and its consequences. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.